God, I hope this episode doesn't get eaten. Okay, let's try this. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We are continuing on to record the second half of February 1965. Steve is still here and Rob is still here. How- hey. So what have you been doing since we last spoke? Wow, it, feels like, it feels like no time has passed whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, if you are listening to these episodes in opposite order, which people sometimes do, this is our special guest, Rob Salkowitz, who is joining us to talk about the books of February 1965. He joined us for our last episode where we talked about the first half, alphabetically, of the books from 1965. And now he is joining us again to talk about the last half. Rob is the author of Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture, What the World's Wildest Trade Show Can Tell Us About the Future of Entertainment. He writes about comics for Forbes magazine and has had all sorts of wonderful things to say about them over the years. Thank you so much for coming back for a second episode, Rob. It's my pleasure. Let's go ahead and go on to Strange Tales, number 129. They say, no, we didn't leave Doctor Strange out of this issue. We just didn't have room for him on the cover. Dude, Doctor Strange is the whole reason anybody is buying this book. Put him on the cover. (laughs) The Human Torch thing stories are so lame. Instead, we see the Human Torch thing fighting the terrible trio who are unfortunately back. We get inside the book, we see it as story by Stan Lee, as if you didn't know, penciling by Dick Ayers, as if anyone cares, inking by Frankie Ray, as if it matters, lettering by Art Simek, as if things aren't bad enough. So Stan Lee giving himself a good credit and not anybody else. But Frankie Ray, Frank Giacoya, Rob, is that, can you correct my pronunciation of Frank Giacoya? That's right. I usually assumed it was Giacoya. No, I think I think it's actually multiple syllables in there, Giacoya. Really excellent inking from Frank Giacoya. I think he's still struggling to yes. get the thing's face right, but so is Dick Ayers for that matter. Really, if you look at the Terrible Trio on this first splash page, they've got a real sort of kniff feel to them. They've got a real solidity to their faces that Ayers doesn't usually give. Frank Giacoya's Frankie Ray seems to have been adding to Ayers' pencils. So I think it's a nice... And I will say uh-huh. in anticipation that I was noticing several panels along in here that looked like they could very easily have appeared in a 1950s newspaper adventure comic strip, yeah. which, you know, generally tended to have more talented artists than the comic books for the most part, on average. This story has better art than it usually yeah. does, and that's yes, not it does. necessarily yes, it does. high praise. So this is something that I found, like most sane people, I read probably the first two of these stories from this run of Strange Tales, and I thought, this is garbage, I'm not even going to bother. And so my impression of what the overall standard for these stories is, is like super low. And this one pleasantly surprised me as being a competently drawn, actually (laughs) reasonably well-structured comic book story. It didn't suck terribly. And so consequently, I was like, wow, this one is okay. This is not the issue you were singling out as being great. That That's a different issue. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. But this one and another one where I have very low expectations for exceeded my expectations. Like I had given up well before I had ever gotten to this story. I had not read this one and I was like, you know, it's like this is your 12 cents worth of story here, you know, or, or your six cents worth because then you've got Dr. Strange for the other six cents. Yeah. All right. I got, I got six cents worth of entertainment out of this one. <laughs> so once again, we've got... Human Torch hanging out with Dory. She is, once again, talking about Peter Parker. A gentleman like Peter Parker would never lose his temper in such a juvenile way because Johnny Storm gets pissed at his golf ball and flames on and destroys it. The thing 
calls out on Human Torch's radio, says, Terrible Trio has escaped. Remember these three people who worked for Doctor Doom and Yoki Decor and, uh, anyway, the handsome guy and the big strong guy. They are free again. Handsome Harry Phillips, Yoki Decor, and Bull Brogan. You know, I am not the biggest fan of the Enforcers. I know you like them better than I do. This is the bargain basement Enforcer, (laughs) to some extent. Yes. Yoki Decor now has a flying carpet. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's never had a flying carpet before. I don't know. We'll have to go back and check, but I think he did. I don't think he did. But anyway, he's flying around on a flying carpet. He's using a lasso on the torch. The torch just happens to land in a rail yard while he's flying there. But the terrible trio are waiting there in the rail yard, which is a little strange. Apparently, they were following him as he flew across the sky, waiting for him to tire. And they pounce on him there. They tie him up. Presumably, this is an asbestos rope. He flies away, but they're all hanging onto him while he's flying around. And he's jerking them all around in the sky. There is a coloring error in the original pages. Presumably you guys are looking at the Marvel Unlimited versions. All the faces become red on page six. Then the torch eventually ends up on the tracks and gets his foot stuck in the tracks. All the torch can do once his foot is stuck is he can send up a big flaming four into the sky to summon Ben. So then Ben comes and is fighting the three of them. Of course, you know, Reed and Sue, they're like, oh, we should go help him. It's like, no, 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 no. This is Strange Tales. Let the thing have his thing. (laughs) George <laughs> is still stuck on the tracks Bullbrogan wraps seemingly a rail around Ben Grimm and manages to leave him on the tracks as well it's interesting sort of storytelling that Ares uses here because then we see the train is about to hit Human Torch and Thing and even the terrible trio can't watch they're like oh this is going to be so bad then we suddenly cut to once the terrible trio have already been arrested and the human torch and thing are bringing them home. And then we just get a quick flashback to when it's like, it turns out that the big twist in this issue is that the thing kicked the train. And that was the big thing that nobody thought would happen. How about that? I'm a human backstop. It's the thing. It's unbelievable. He stopped the train with his own sheer muscle power. And then he instantly broke out of the rail that's wrapped around him, frees Johnny, presumably, and he ties up the terrible trio. Now we get one of the most bizarre panels in the history of Marvel comics, perhaps on the top of page 12, Now, Ayers has no one to blame but himself for this panel, because I realize that Ayers is like, oh, crap, it's Human Torch and Thing flying home, but they're flying home with the three bad guys all tied up, but there is no backseat to their fantastic car. Well, if there's no backseat, Dick Ayers, add a backseat. You are the artist. You can draw whatever you want to draw on these pages. But instead, Dick Ayers is like, no, there's no backseat. So he's got the three bad guys kneeling on the front of the Fantastic Car, all tied up together. And then he specifically shows that the Fantastic Car is flying sideways <laughs> in relation to the buildings in the background while they're kneeling on the hood. With their hands flying. all tied up to where they can't move their hands or anything. Yes. Yeah. What a bizarre panel. And that just storytelling exceeds the standard. For most of the stuff. (laughs) Yes, it is damning with faint praise. And yet that is true. (laughs) It's a goofy, weird story, but it's like filler until you get to Doctor Strange. So, okay. We have had worse Strange Tales, Johnny Torch stories. Yes, we certainly have. I would say the only thing noteworthy about this issue is Frank Yokoya is, once again, an excellent addition to the Marvel Universe. He is an excellent Inker, he will only very rarely get to be an excellent penciler as well. Just a couple issues of Avengers, I think. But uh, he is an excellent artist and is greatly improving this book. 
Again, we see that stupid subplot with Johnny and his girlfriend. This reminds me, have you ever had a Vegemite? I'm familiar with it. And it's like, oh, you can spread it on anything. Yes, but it's always terrible. That's the (laughs) subplot. You can put it in every story and it doesn't make it any better. It's just, it's always brown and gross. (laughs) Jory Evans is the Vegemite of Marvel Comics. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So let's go ahead and jump to the second half of the book, the always better half of the book. So once again, Rob, we have had you on in the wrong month because next month begins one of the all-time great Marvel Comics storylines. Next month The greatest Marvel Comics storyline of the 60s begins next issue, not this issue. (laughs) I mean, we couldn't have you on for that. I mean, you know, that that would... I actually had not even looked at what these books were when we were like, oh, this month might work out. And you're like, yes. So this is a, this is another one like the Spider-Man where there are no bad Ditko Doctor Stranges, are there? And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it's well drawn. So, but Stanley has potted and scripted, well potted, we don't know, but scripted almost every issue of Doctor Strange. He didn't have Larry Lieber script any of the issues. He didn't generally have other people like E.G. Huntley scripting issues. But here we have a book where not only do we have Don Rico. So Don Rico, when the Black Widow first showed up in Iron Man, her credited scripter of that issue was N. Korok, which was clearly a pseudonym. N. Korok, it turns out, was really the name of Don Rico. Well, now we get Don Rico back writing under his own name. But this book, it's really interesting credits. It says, edited by Stan Lee and his magic typewriter, script by Don Rico and his mystic fountain pen, illustrated by Steve Dicko and his miraculous lead pencil, lettered by Sam Rosen and his melancholy pen point. So who plotted it? It doesn't say potted by Stan Lee. It says edited by Stan Lee. I think this is an unused amazing adult fantasy story that they put Doctor Strange into. I, I think this one is from pre-hero Atlas. They dusted it off and that Rico might have written it, you know, in 1959 or something like that. This weird multidimensional tyrant guy strikes me as like a pre-hero type Menace, the story beats feel like an Atlas story to me. Hmm, It does. I I think this might be like some inventory story that while they were winding up for what was going to be their greatest moment, they just kind of had to dust one off and throw it out there. I think this is the first book that we've ever encountered making our way through Marvel Comics that has the first credit being edited by Stan Lee. And it happens twice this month where the first credit, and now this is something where when Stan Lee later is no longer writing the books in the late 60s, you know, a book that he is not working on at all, he will go ahead and begin the book with edited by Stanley as the first credit, which is sort of a bogus thing to do. Because if you're just the editor, your credit shouldn't come first. But this is the first time we've seen this in the 1960s. Yeah. We have Beware Tiboro, T-I-B-O-R-O, The Tyrant of the Sixth Dimension, a story somewhat similar to a story we've seen before. First, we have Doctor Strange refusing to answer questions about black magic to reporters on the street. We get three skeptics in a TV studio who are like, yeah, we regret to inform our audience that Dr. Strange has not accepted our invitation to appear on this panel. Therefore, we reject him as an authority on the world of the supernatural. We shall proceed without him. And they talk about how they don't believe in the supernatural, and they've got a supposedly cursed screaming idol here. <laughs> we're going to show the world we're not scared of it. Well, then the whole studio blacks out, and the three men disappear, and only the screaming idol is left. And they're like, oh, crap, what are we going to do? Let's call Dr. Strange. So then they called Doctor Strange. He's like, okay, I'll come over. I'll check it out. Yep, they all got sucked into another dimension by the Screaming Idol. Checks in with the Ancient One. Ancient One tells him about back in 
they don't say when, but this seems like it might have been Aztec times or something. Uh, no, when, it, uh, it definitely before that. Actually, they seem to imply that this was pre-human. There are a couple of different points when they say ages ago, before the coming of modern man, in another panel here, they actually refer to the beings that he ruled over. Oh, okay. So it seems to be a little bit ambiguous about whether these are actually human beings or something before that. Yes. And I always forget that the Aztecs are a very recent thing in yes. human history that like <laughs> Oxford University was founded before the Aztec Empire was founded. Doctor Strange goes into the other dimension, confronts Tiburow. This is, you know, not that different from other stuff we've seen before. One thing that we see as new is something that would get used a lot in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think this is the first time it happens in the comics that Doctor Strange is fighting someone and sends his cloak of levitation around behind the guy to then pounce on the guy and wrap him up. And, Can we talk uh, about the panel at the top of this page? I mean, there must be 300 words in this one panel. Yes. Right? When Ditko is drawing other dimensions, like that's the price of admission right there. Let him cook. Don't yeah. put all these words there. Jeez. Is this page six that we're talking about? I think page so. seven. Okay, yeah, page, page seven. Okay, because it seemed like you were describing page six, so he did it there too, I guess. Yeah, I mean, this is a constant theme in, yeah. in all of these. I mean, you've yeah. got like these tombstones overlapping dialogue and thought boxes, and 90% of this, these words are not adding anything to the story. Yeah. They shoot a bunch of lights at each other, and then... The finale, for what it's worth, is that he convinces Tibero to attack something where Doctor Strange supposedly is, but says, ah, look behind you, Tibero. It was an illusion, nothing more. I still possess the power of enchantment, but you have used up all your evil arts. I demand that you surrender. So, you know, slightly clever way of defeating him. And then, as always happens in these stories, he doesn't do away with him at all. He just says, now that I've defeated you once, I'm sure you'll never try anything again. Doctor Strange says, I'm going to take the prisoners. I'm going to go home takes the prisoners there and they're like, we'll put on a show depicting what happened and prove the existence of black magic. Dr. Strange will be the star. And he says, nope, I'm going to make it forget everything. And then lets them go back on TV and talk about what a coward he is again. And he doesn't care because he's going to do it. Now, one thing element of this issue is that Tibro specifically says, I am the spirit of decay. When a civilization has reached a point of crisis, then I take command. Your world seethes with tension and unrest, with the menace of war and anarchy. It is almost ready for the tyranny of Tibro. And then after Dark Strange returns to his own dimension, he thinks, and I pray that civilization never falters, that men's ideals never grow so weak that Tibero will strike again. We've talked about the general move away from militarism of the early Stanley comics to an anti-militarism and general humanism of the later comics. That's the one I think sort of interesting element of this issue is this idea that Tibero as the spirit of decay and you know, worrying about what's going to happen to mankind. I like that element of it. But this is, generally speaking, I don't want to put this issue down too much. It's beautiful. Dicko draws the hell out of it, inks the hell out of it. It's a really gorgeous issue, and it's a perfectly fine issue. It is a shame, Rob, that you were here the month before we begin the Marvel's Greatest Epic. For somebody who's like, this is their first issue of Strange Tales, and they read this, all right, this Human Torch story is okay. It's kind of lightweight. And it's like, but Doctor Strange, like I've heard really good things about it. And then they read this story and they say, ah, I'm not going to bother. Next issue is <laughs> like, you know, it's like liftoff. Yeah. So what, one of the other things I noticed is that the dialogue of the skeptics on page two oddly seems to remind me of the uh, scripting that Ditko himself would write in his Mr. A comics years later. It does. There's the whole thing about 
okay, a plot was given to the artist and then the artist would draw it and write little notes like what people are saying or what, you know, explaining what people are doing or whatnot. I almost wonder whether he wrote like a whole little dissertation in the corner. <laughs> it could be. It could be that because, I mean, in later years, Stanley, who certainly was not shy about taking credit for everything, did often say when it came to Doctor Strange, Steve Ditko was at the wheel. He was just along for the ride. And and this kind of weird Don Rico credit here makes me wonder that Stan says, I don't have time to write this. And Steve says, I'll write it. And he says, no, 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 you're not a writer. And then so Steve like says, here's Don Rico. He used to write comics like he'll be the writer. I, I mean, who knows? Yeah. There's a lot of weirdness in this particular one. The art is good, but it's a yeah. very, very odd story. Uh, this is sort of a little bit inside baseball, but Steve Ditko is famous for having very ordered pages. Most stereotypically, it's the nine panel grid that Watchmen used obsessively throughout its run. But, you know, he'll usually have six panel pages or nine panel pages or at least use those panel border lines. Almost never do you get what you get on page two, where that top panel has that weird little drop off, like that little step along the bottom. I am 99.9% sure that that was the letterer trying to fit in all the dialogue for the next panel uh, and didn't want to have to cover up anybody's head. So just bumped that panel border up. And this is not the only time we see that this month. I think it's in the Hulk book. We have something very similar happen. And I do not believe that Steve Ditko ever would have done that himself. Yeah, I agree. In the original coloring, Doc Strange still has no yellow on his cloak. The squiggly part of his cloak is colored brown, oddly enough. Huh. They've, they've fixed that here. I guess a T-Bro's helmet is just really weird. Occasionally, Steve Dicko would just make some really weird helmets, and uh, it's a very strange-looking helmet. As I say here, my notes, perfectly fine issue. Last issue before Big Epic begins. Rico does fine job, but it'll be good to get Lee back for the Big Epic next issue. So we are going to move on to Tales of Suspense with Iron Man and Captain America. When last we left off with Iron Man, it was a cliffhanger. Iron Man was tied up. Mandarin was about to start monologuing. Well, since you're about to die, I may as well tell you about how I got all my powers. Brashly written by Stan Lee, boldly drawn by Don Heck, brazenly inked by Dick Ayers, bashfully lettered by S. Rosen. As I said, um, my defense of Don Heck is going to be decreasing over the coming months and will eventually more or less disappear. One of the things is that he has not done much favors by the inkers that are working at Marvel. He is usually better when he inks himself. The only exceptions to that I can think of are once he's inked by Wally Wood and once he's inked by John Romita Sr. And both of those are excellent. On the splash page, I will note that the layout of Iron Man is rather unfortunate with where his left foot is appearing in the foreshortened perspective. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just like that famous Star Wars trading card with C-3PO. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Do a Google search for C-3PO. <laughs> not safe for work or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you will know what I'm talking about. Oh yes, this is very much like that. The Mandarin tells his story. One thing we find is that he is half English and that he is descended from Genghis Khan. Now, Genghis Khan, of course, is not Chinese. He is Mongol, but he conquered lots and lots of land and probably left babies scattered all about. Who knows whether this means he is actually Mongol or Chinese and English. 
So that's a little bit more about his background. His uh, mother was a highborn English woman. His father had this heritage of Genghis Khan. He marries her. He is shunned by his people. There are bad omens. Both of his parents die very young, supposedly because of this transgression that they made. Uh, he is sent to be raised by an aunt who despises him and thinks that he is bad news. He had inherited all this wealth, and they end up spending all of his massive wealth just to educate him in science and technology and all sorts of stuff. So he now has nothing He's kicked out on the street and refuses to work because that's for peasants. He then decides to go off and look into this forbidden valley that no one will go into. And he's like, oh, there must be something in here for me. I feel it's my destiny. So he goes in there and finds a skeleton of what looks like a Chinese dragon in a cliffside cave. Startles him enough that he falls off the cliff into some undergrowth and finds a spaceship in there. Well, it turns out that spaceship was flown by this dragon-looking creature, which then eventually came to Earth and gave rise to the legend of the Chinese-style dragon. Do we think that's Fin Fang Foom, by the way? Look at that depiction of that creature. In, on Looks that out like him. That's a good question. I, I think they've established that Fin Fang Foom is the same thing as the world serpent, whose name is, what, Yggdrasil? No, Yggdrasil's the tree. That's a long ways off. They could all three be the same thing. Who knows? But that looks like Fin Fang Foom. That's the first thing I thought when I saw that. It's like, wow, that's yeah. interesting. So he is able to get all the knowledge of this alien's technology through some kind of a cybernetic helmet sort of thing, and then finds that the source of the power for this spaceship was these 10 little rings of energy or something like that powered the ship. So he takes them and he puts them on his fingers, finds they all have these different powers, and uses them to uh, essentially take over this area of China. The Mandarin then says, okay, well, now that I've told you my origin, I am going to kill you by spinning you around on this big disc that I've tied you on to faster and faster until you die. And now that you're spinning, I will walk out, turn my back on you, not look back and assume that you're dead. Like any Bond villain would. Iron Man frees himself, but then he's able to do something with the wiring there to actually use the spinning of the disc like a recharging dynamo type thing to repower himself, which, okay, sure. You know, as, as they say, it's just science. He's able to escape. The Mandarin, meanwhile has given a rocket to the Chinese that they are going to test, but the Mandarin has programmed this thing, unbeknownst to the Chinese government, to actually blow up uh, what they call Formosa here, which I believe is the same thing that we call Taiwan or Taipei, correct? Yep, that's right. That's right. With the knowledge that this would definitely start World War III, and then he would come in to rule the rubble left over after civilization destroys itself. Iron Man now is free. He's going to try to stop this rocket. He ends up getting some kind of knee suction cups that he puts on to be able to connect onto the missile and be able to program it with both of his hands while he's holding on by his knee suction cups. So he reprograms the missile to go back to the location it came from, and it goes and blows up the Chinese military base. The Mandarin is trying to escape. After this, Iron Man stops him. And they get into a battle. At one point, Iron Man puts this weird um, blaster attachment onto the back of his hand, 
Now, we've seen something similar to that in the episode where he had to go and get some spare armor that had this top-of-the-wrist blaster thing. Uh, this looks different from that, but it seems that the Don Heck seems like he's playing around with changing the way that his hand blasters work. They have a big fight. We get to see some of the powers of some of the Mandarin's rings, like the ice ring and various things like that. I think we see the black light as well. They still have not given us a definitive list of the powers of the rings yet. They're still just occasionally the rings will show us some new power we haven't seen before. And they haven't nailed themselves down as to what the Ten Rings can do. Right. But one thing that I actually find surprising is that whenever they say, oh, we have a ring that does this, they keep that. I mean, it's like generally you'll look back later and and those designs that Don Heck had for how the rings look. If I remember right, the official handbook in the Marvel Universe in the 80s, they had diagrams and they looked pretty much exactly like that. Well, you can poor Elliot R. Brown, who did so much of that official handbook in the Marvel Universe stuff just had to go back through all of these Stanley issues and all of these 20 issues of Marvel Comics that had come out at the time and go like, all right, let's officially nail down what the Ten Rings are and what each one looks like and what each one does. And he had to go through all these issues and make it all make sense in retrospect. And these Ten Rings are now like the basis of Marvel Phase 4 or whatever. <laughs> yes. Now, right? yeah. Well, not these Ten Rings. Ten Rings of some sort. The idea that there's Ten Rings and the Mandarin's involved and stuff like that kind of yeah. has its genesis in, in this kind of stuff. The very first Marvel movie, even back in 2008, you know, was Iron Man. And Iron Man was taken captive by a Afghan terrorist group called the Ten Rings. At the time, that felt like just funny little Easter egg to this. Oh, wow. I totally missed that. Wow. The MCU has then gotten so much juice out of that because then it later turned out the Ten Rings were related to the Mandarin in Iron Man 3, but then the Mandarin turned out to just be an English actor, but then they revealed in a short film after that that there was a real Mandarin and he was just pretending to be him. And then we got to the Shang-Chi movie where we actually meet the Mandarin for the first time, the actual Mandarin, although he says he would never call himself the Mandarin because that's the name of a chicken dish. He is revealed to have Ten Rings, but he has completely different types of rings. He has big, heavy hoop rings that sit on his forearms, sort of like in the movie, The 36th Chamber of Shaolin. He then shoots them out at people and moves them around. They, he does not have actual 10 rings on his fingers that can do 10 different things. But well, it's a little poetic license. But yeah, it's a really interesting, different variation. And I got to say, I prefer the comics. I think it's a really cool look for the Mandarin to have different rings on each of his 10 fingers and they can each do different cool things. I can see why they didn't do that for the Shang-Chi movie. You know, especially if Shang-Chi himself was going to inherit these 10 rings, which he does at the end of the movie, you wouldn't want to have Shang-Chi walking around with 10 superpowered rings on him. And instead you give him these Chamber of Shaolin type yeah. big arm hoops. So is this the book, Rob, that you were going to say you really well, liked? This is, this is the book, but this isn't the story. So this is, another, this is another one like the Strange Tales one, where I have this fixed idea that these Iron Man stories are just awful. Because if you read the first couple of them, especially after Kirby leaves, they're just not that good. Tony Stark is a jerk, and like the villains aren't that interesting, and it's not very well drawn, and all of this stuff. So I kind of put this out of my mind that it's like, okay, the Iron Man story is going to be terrible. This story is not terrible, except for the fact that the Mandarin is kind of a racist mess. If he was not that, this would actually be a pretty solid story. I agree. The other thing is, relative to Don Heck, I'm on this Facebook group. So the Eisner judges were just announced. And once again, I'm not one of them. So, so <laughs> never mind that. I'm not better. They're talking about like people who should be going in the Hall of Fame. And somebody floated the name of Don Heck. And I'm like, really? 
in the Hall of Fame? Are you kidding me? So I said, like, Don Heck is like the hackiest hack from Axville. He's like the epitome of the replacement level mediocre artist. He was doing his job. He was collecting a paycheck. Some of his stuff was good. Some of his stuff was not good. But it's like you would never go and read a comic book because Don Heck drew it. I think that's fair to say. If all you are is an artist, then to me, that should be the minimum tier for the Eisner Hall of Fame, is that at least at one point in your career, somebody was buying the book because you drew it. Mark Evanier then jumps into this and takes great exceptions. They say, oh, he wasn't a hack. He was very quality conscious and he had a great work ethic and stuff like that. And I'm like, all right, fair enough. I didn't know the man. But I always had in this idea in my head that his stuff was not that good. This story is quite well drawn. It's like, it's it not is. great. But it's definitely above average. So of all the stuff that we've been reading this month, including the Wally Wood story and the Kirby and the Ditko, the pacing moves along. Each panel looks good. The action is handled well, notwithstanding Iron Man's dong in the first shot. But, you know, like, <laughs> like that, that's, a, that's an amusing little detail by itself. But the rest of it, this story feels like four or five years ahead of its time in terms of the storytelling style. It feels like a much more... Not like a 1963 story, more like a 1967-68 style Marvel story. I, hats off to Don Heck. This is not a bad piece of work right here. It's really yeah. not. I think that there's a lot of good action pacing, as you say. I think that the sequence on page nine of the Chinese launching the missile and then Iron Man having to intercept the missile midair and reverse it and sending it back at the Chinese and then it blows up the Chinese base. It's a really nice sequence. I feel like, you know, I would love to see someone like Brian Hitch do this sequence and make it the 12 page, you know, widescreen action epic it should be. But if you got to cram all this into one page, this is a nice way to do it. There's a lot of story here in half a book. Like, there is. It's, it's weird. It's like you've got this stupid Daredevil story that should have been 12 pages that was actually 30 or something. And now you've got this Iron Man story where there's enough action for 30 pages and they cram it into 12 or 13 pages. So it's like, again, kind of the head scratcher Marvel publishing strategy at this moment. But there you go. Again, the first time I went back through and read all these books, I was delightfully surprised by a lot of Don Heck's early Marvel superhero work. Particularly, you know, you were saying when Kirby left Iron Man, Kirby never did that much Iron Man. No, um, right. And it wasn't his first issue either. His first issue was drawn by Don Heck. And his first few issues by Don Heck were really quite charming. Uh, and he was laid out by Kirby, wasn't no, it? No. No. It was pure Heck. Yeah. If you look at all the MCU movies with Iron Man, they always say Iron Man created by. Stanley Lear, Lieber, and Don Heck. They, Kirby doesn't get any credit. I thought he still got some credit because he had like done some design work for it. Nope. In the MCU credits, he doesn't get any credit. Yeah, and also in some of the early Giant Man Wasp stories, or maybe it was still Ant Man Wasp stories, Don Heck draws those, and some of those are really, really charming as well. Once he starts being inked by other people and starts getting put onto team books. None of that suits him, and it goes downhill quickly. But no, I enjoyed it so much that I actually went and tracked down the Don Heck art book and have it, believe it or not. It is a little strange that he's not in the Hall of Fame. He was such a major part of the early Marvel Universe. I could see him actually ending up in there. But, you know, certainly, you know, he is... Hall of Good. Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Like, come on. The Marvel Universe would not be what it is without him. Yeah. I will say that. Just as the credited co-creator of Iron Man, you would think that alone might get him in. Certainly, H.G. Huntley is the credited co-creator of The Wasp, and H.G. Huntley's not making it in. (laughs) Yes, good point. 
And I, I'm guessing, Rob, that this is one that you really like here. Captain America, Breakout in Cell Block 10. Now, this is kind of similar to two solo Captain America stories we've had before, where essentially he is asked to do some kind of demonstration or test or something else by somebody. And it turns out that these are actually bad guys he's fighting and not trained actors or acrobats or whatever it is that he thinks he's fighting. Well, again, Stan Lee is apologizing right away for like, we did this story two issues ago where Cap thought he was giving a demonstration and it turned out he was fighting actual bad guys. I apologize for Jack repeating this story. Okay, now let's begin. But it's like the story is so irrelevant to this. Yeah. This is this is that line from the journey into mystery. Like, here's Jack going nuts for two pages. Enjoy it. Here's Jack going nuts for 13 pages of Cap just fighting mobs of goons in these like action packed. This is probably my favorite Jack Kirby all action comic of the entire Silver Age. And that's saying quite a bit. This is the masterpiece to me. I mean, it's like Jack Kirby doing a drum solo for 10 minutes of just like, boom. <laughs> you don't want that every time, but Jesus, I mean, yeah. every one of these pages, every one of these panels, you know, I teach a class in comics as communication. And I think I actually use one of these pages to talk about like the subtleties of layout and composition, because this is just a masterpiece of design. Every line in this, even our friend Chick Stone acquits himself fairly well on this one, just, you know, moves your eye through the pages yeah, there's like a little bit too much dialogue, but so what? Cap is just going nuts and punching everybody. I, I just love, love, love this story. It's nice. Yeah, I think that it's just that we have just recently read two other stories where they do basically the same thing. So one of the things that Matt and I have talked about is how they don't really know yet what to do with Captain America in the 60s. Like they brought him back, they like him, but what do we do with him in, in the current day and age? And the one thing they know is, well, we haven't figured it out yet, but we know that he does a great job fighting an army of goons. So each Captain month- America, the, the second movie, the Winter Soldier uh-huh. movie, yeah. he's in the elevator yes. and he fights all those guys in the elevator. That is like right out of this story. They could have storyboarded yes. that from this story, I think. I was thinking that same thing as I was looking at this. In the previous issue, we'd had a story where he was rescuing a younger brother of a GI that he had met in World War II who was now in prison in Vietnam. That really seems to be where the book sort of ends up going in terms of dealing with the contrast between World War II and the Vietnam era. But at this point here, they're still like, well, we're not quite sure what we're doing yet. So more armies of goons. And yes, Kirby just acquits himself beautifully with all this stuff. But this issue has what I consider to be the most tragic development in the entire history of Captain America, (laughs) which is to say the magnets are gone from the shield. Now, I have said before, Rob, on this show that the thing I just can never get over, I cannot suspend my disbelief for Captain America when he throws the shield at people and it bounces off them and back into his hand. I just have never bought that, that a shield would do that. There was just a brief moment in the comics when he had magnets in his shield, and there was a brief moment in the MCU movies where he had magnets in his shield. But to my mind, Captain America always has the magnets. He sometimes lies and says he's not using the magnets, but he's lying. (laughs) He always has the magnets, because that's the only way I can, as a reader, suspend my disbelief when the shield goes back into his arm. So this issue, tragically, is the first issue where they explicitly say he no longer has the magnets in his shield. But to my mind... And there was no reason to get rid of it. That was definitely a cool touch. To me, this is a great example of Marvel finally figures out how to get out of their own way with this. Some of these stories, like that Fantastic Four, to me, 
suffered from too much plot. Like there was too much stuff going on in that story. It got in the way of the enjoyment of the things that were good about it. And this one, there's nothing to get in the way of your enjoyment. Like it's not up to that much. We know who the bad guys are, <laughs> who the good guy is. And it, they just let fly with it. And it's like, cool, that's, that's good enough. Yeah. No one ever accused these early Captain America stories of having too much plot. They are very thin <laughs> on plot. Captain America has been brought into this prison to, I think, either do a demonstration or try to test whether you could escape or something like that. Anyway, that's not what's going on. It's actually that the prisoners have essentially taken over the inside of the prison and have brought Captain America in because he has this shield that has these magnet gizmos that they're going to use to open the electromagnetic lock on the prison. They lock Captain America in one of the cells. They then go and try to use this shield like a key on the door. Doesn't work, and that's when Captain America specifies that he took them out of his shield because they messed up the balance, and the balance is what it needs to be able to bounce around and hit everybody and then come back to his arm. So No, it's uh, bogus. It's bogus. Yes. Yes. And so then we just have him fighting all of the prisoners who are all trying to attack him at once. And yes, Rob, as you pointed out, the famous elevator fight scene in Captain America Winter Soldier is somewhat reminiscent of this massive one on 50 battle that we've got here. So in the end, he defeats all of the prisoners. The actual cops come in, they take them all back over, put them back where they go. It turns out at the very end that actually nothing can open this thing except a verbal password that magnets couldn't do it. All it does is a verbal password, and the verbal password is Captain America. Which makes no sense. It this doesn't seem no like a like... good idea. There are probably lots of criminals who are in there who are like, why are you in here? Uh, Captain America, you know, did this, that, and the other doors open hey <laughs> which actually happens later in issue i think 260 of captain america once he has taken over the numbering of this book they cut back to this prison and they have two criminals saying who put you in here captain america and then the doors suddenly swing open <laughs> they're like oh that was really dumb people in prison talk about captain america it's one of the things they talk about we shouldn't have doors that automatically open when somebody mentions captain america so i love that whoever the writer was on that issue I don't remember. I think it might have been Peter Bikilis. I forget whoever felt the need to go back and specify how dumb the ending of this issue was. <laughs> yes, in terms of an all-out action battle, this is fantastic. Rob, have you read either of those other two all-out action battle issues that they had had? Oh, yeah. In the late 70s, they reissued the stuff just like these paperbacks. Mm -hmm. So they had a Captain America paperback that traced this whole storyline and again, this is another one that gets good in a couple of issues. Like pretty soon they put him back in World War II and then you've got like the origin of the Red Skull. The plot thickens to quite a degree and actually gets pretty interesting with AIM and like all this other stuff gets gets brought into it. Yeah, it's like these first ones, it's kind of refreshing that, you know, he's kind of a basic character and you let Kirby do his thing. And it's like, that's that's enough to sell you a comic book. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. I think the only reason why I was a little more cynical about it was just because three out of four months now we've had, hmm, we don't know what we're good at with Captain America other than having him fight an army of goons. So let's have him fight an army of goons. But uh, yes, it is very, very well done. I will not, I will not deny that. But they need to find another note for him. Yeah. And they, and they quickly would. Yes. That chapter came to an end pretty quickly. But at least, I mean, if you're going to do it, do it right. And this is done right. 
there are evil people and good people in Kirby's world, and they have completely different eyebrows. <laughs> Whenever you have a character in Kirby's world who is evil and pretending to be good, they always just fail utterly because of their eyebrows. We have at the beginning, supposedly the warden of this prison who has brought in Captain America to this demonstration. It's like, Kirby, you're not fooling anybody. This is an evil warden. By the time we get to page three, his eyebrows are just going absolutely insane. But even when like Dr. Doom took over Mr. Fantastic's mind, it was just so clearly obvious that he was Dr. Doom and he was evil even while he was Mr. Fantastic's body because of what happened to his eyebrows. Before I let you get into uh, the Giant Man one here, this is also written by somebody else. Stan Lee had had his brother and some other folks scripting some of these books for him, you know, in the first six to 12 months of Marvel's publication. And then he seemed to be like, no, I'm going to take control of all this myself. This is the first month where he has started to loosen up those reins a little bit again. And this will continue for a little while. He's going to have some different guest writers who some of which will be terrible and some of which will be okay. But then he'll eventually come up with Roy Thomas as part of this next wave of finding other writers. And Roy Thomas, of course, will go on to be the ersatz Stan Lee that he was looking for. And also Denny O'Neill. Yes, just yes. briefly. But of course, all we've seen of Roy Thomas so far is that he wrote the first letter in the first Fantastic Four letter column. <laughs> that is all we've seen of Roy Thomas so far, but he will show up soon. Were and, you going to talk about who scripts the Giant Man issue? Was that what yes. you were about to talk about? Yeah, that, that was the other thing I was going to mention is Leon Lazarus. Absolutely yes, so, sounds like yes. a pseudonym, right? Did, did, Sorry, Lieber, did, I'm reading this Giant Man story. It's Giant Man of the Wonderful Wasp when a tomb strikes. So again, they just say Stan Lee is the editor. It says, edited by Smiley and Stan Lee, written by Laughing Leon Lazarus. And I just started chuckling. And I'm like, Leon Lazarus, come on. You're not putting any work into these pseudonyms. That's so obviously a pseudonym. You know, obviously, if Gene Colan was Adam Austin, this must be like, Carrie Bates or somebody, some DC writer who is coming over here to write his Leon Lazarus. Well, then I look it up. That's his real name. There's an actual writer named Leon Lazarus, and he is writing this book under his real name. And this is the only Marvel comic he ever wrote, or the only Marvel comic he ever was credited with writing, because he had written for Marvel comics before they had writer credits. So I looked this up, too, for the same reason. So I was just like, that cannot possibly be a real name. According to the Wikipedia page, he had written tons and tons of stuff during the Golden Age. Every now and then, his name would show up as a credit, but very, very little. It was assumed by most of the comics world that Leon Lazarus was just a pseudonym for somebody until, like, the 2000s or something like that, when somebody tracked the actual guy down, and he was able to give all sorts of information on what books he had written back in the day yes yeah. but this was his only marvel superhero book the only one he was credited with yeah, yeah the only one he was credited with but yeah let's go and talk about tales of astonish number 64 giant man and the incredible hulk it has giant man finding a tuma on the cover here is a tuma it's not a tuma and it's got the leader fighting the hulk and the humanoids on the cover so yes we begin with giant man and the wonderful wasp when a tuma strikes stanley leon lazarus carl burgos paul reinman sam rosen again reinman is a great inker on kirby he is not a good anchor on Bad Pencilers, and Carl Burgos not doing a great job here, and Reinman not helping him. I don't know why Reinman makes Kirby look so good and can't make anybody else look good, but that's just the way it is. So Jan is trying to help Hank, who is building a giant ant robot for some reason. 
Jan trips and drops what she was bringing to Hank. And she says, sorry, I guess accidents will happen. And he says, and yours are real buttes. There isn't a good diode left in the lot. Your blooper will probably wash weeks of work and smack down the drain. I wish that Carl Burgos had at least given her something to trip on. I wish he had at least had some like cables going across the ground, which presumably there would be in a robotics lab that she could have tripped on. She deserved trips on her own two feet here. He is an absolute dick to her. He yells at her in a completely unjustified way. She, believably enough, is just goes back crying, runs off crying, runs to her room. It's just feeling awful at getting yelled at for no reason. And then she decides to leave him, leave it to her John letter. We see she decides to not take any pills, not take any wasp suits with her, leave it all behind. We see she's got this poster on the inside of her closet door, which is her maintenance musts. And it says she must oil the W on her helmet every three days. <laughs> she has been hardcore with her maintenance up until now, but no, now she is all done. She gets on a plane to fly away. Hank eventually goes back to check on her, finds the Dear John letter, realizes she has left him, gets so upset that he suddenly grows up so, super high and bonks his head on the ceiling and collapses back down onto the floor. No, he, no, he bonks his head on power lines. Power lines. Oh, ensnared in a scene of high voltage lines. Yeah. Okay. It certainly looks like he's, oh, I see. Yeah. He smashes through the ceiling. Anyway, yeah. totally drawn it, by Burgos. I can't tell what's going on. Yeah. He certainly does not seem to have drawn any high voltage power lines. You know, so Burgos is just not rising to the task of these books. We get something that Kirby would have absolutely, Kirby or Dicko would have absolutely loved to draw on page four, where Jan is flying in her jet over an island that turns out is a fake island that is actually situated on a huge Atuma submarine. Burgos just does a terrible job drawing this on page four. Certainly the scale is completely off. Compare the scale of Atuma in this drawing to the scale of Jan in the plane. Doesn't make any sense. Atuma says, hey, there's a plane flying overhead or mountain. Let's go ahead and kidnap it. Send a bunch of bubbles. Have the bubbles force the plane to land. Again, Burgos cannot make this make any sense. I don't know if anybody could. I will point out that Leon Lazarus misspelled and Stanley failed to catch epoxy throughout this entire thing. They're saying this is some kind of epoxy something or other, but they're spelling it with an A instead of an E. I even went and looked it up to see whether there's some other term, apoxy, and no, there is not. <laughs> I assumed that that must be some other word that I just didn't know what yes, it was. so did I. I looked it up. It's not. <laughs> okay. Atuma sees that apparently there was only one woman on the fight, and Atuma's like, I want the woman. Bring the woman to me. He does not realize this is actually a superhero in disguise. She is like, oh, crap, I should have brought some wasp stuff. And she's like, well, there's just the little crumbs of one pill in my purse. And I'm going to take the little crumbs of the pill, and those are going to give me just enough power to contact an ant and send an ant to go get Hank. So she does. The ant goes and gets Hank. Hank then has to shrink down to get in his converticar. The converticar was full size last time we saw it, so that doesn't make any sense. But then Hank goes out to the island, is beaten up a bunch of Atlanteans, frees Jan from a little thing that's holding her in some power beams, gives her her costume, now, it's still unclear if the wasp can shrink herself. For a while, they had a horrible status quo where Hank was using his cybernetic helmet to shrink and grow himself and to shrink and grow the wasp. He was in charge of her shrinking and growing, like, you know, because she also can't have her own credit card and can't have her own bank account. And she was not in charge of her own <laughs> shrinking and growing. They beat up Atuma. Then you get to this bizarre ending to the issue. 
where, again, this is like a 1962 Marvel comic where Atuma says, hold, if surface creatures can change size at will, fly, survive a flooding, then Atuma has erred. Spare me your wrath, and I vow to return to my own realm, never to return. So this is very much how Marvel 1962 alien invasion comics would end. You know, the superhero would attack the alien, and the alien would go like, oh, apparently everybody on Earth can do these things that the superhero can do. This means I shall never attempt to invade the Earth again. Well, now we've got Atuma saying this. Atuma has never met a normal human before? Atuma has never been to the surface. He has no idea that all humans can't do this. According to some of the dialogue in here, Atuma just discovered the surface world. And he's like, oh, good, something else I can conquer after I was defeated by Namor. Dude, this guy (laughs) is rather provincial. (laughs) Like, get out and see the world, Atuma. Like, literally, get out and see the world. Well, that's what he's doing, Matt. I mean, you know, come on. He's finally spreading his wings, and all you're doing is making fun of him. What's that? (laughs) Yeah. So so Hank is thankfully apologetic to Jan as they return. I have no right to ask this, Jan, not after the shabby way I've treated you in the past, but can you find it in your heart to forgive me and come back? And she says, it took going away to know I couldn't really leave you, and what would Giant Man be without the Wasp? It would be like Brinkley without Huntley, only worse. So that's the end of the issue. A... Horribly drawn issue by Carl Burgos, not linked by Paul Reinman. Leon Reiser is presumably plotting and scripting, and you can see why this was the only superhero comic he ever did. A terrible issue. This is the one that I was not able to get. I can see I've missed quite a treat. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh, you poor I've, man. I've always, I've always thought that the whole purpose of these issues was to make the Strange Tale stuff look good. <laughs> I mean, these were like the rock bottom, and these were ones where they would try out these terrible artists. Like the art, you know, Burgos was bad, but like everybody that worked on this book was bad. <laughs> and the fact that this series lasted for what twenty twenty five issues of this thing more than that, I think, boggles yeah. the mind. I'm, I think we're we're shortly coming to the end of the run for that. The only question that this raises to me is that, like, as we get into the mid to late sixties, and we get into those Avengers issues that are written by Roy Thomas that are a little more sophisticated in their approach to this, that Hank Pym really is kind of a jerk. And I think it's intentional that they're making him a jerk. Was he always envisioned as kind of a jerky guy or was he like, were they trying to make him look like a hero and they just failed because he just acted like a dick all the time? Uh, The the latter. (laughs) In his first year or two, he was just very much a, oh, you know, here I am, I'm coming to save the day. And, you know, he just seems like a a generic hero type personality. They just didn't write his relationship with Jan very well. And so that's the direction it ended up going. This is just horrible. Well, I'm sorry, you can't. uh... For for 12 cents, you can rip these pages out and skip right to the Hulk story and get your money's worth. (laughs) So Rob, on Marvel Unlimited, you were unable to find this story, but you were able to find the Hulk story. I wasn't doing it on Marvel Unlimited. I have like a hard drive full of scans of the original issues. Ah. So I would, and they have like letter columns and ads in them and stuff like that. They're, they're a lot of fun, but. Um, That's what Matt's working on too, but apparently his had this and yours didn't. Also, I, I have the Marvel Masterpiece Editions or whatever they're called. I'd never really bothered with Giant Man and Wasp. Right. One last thing I'll point out about this story is that we had established in the very first Hank Pym story, The Man in the Ant Hill, that he knew judo. But in this issue, he also uses some karate. Apparently, he is a mixed martial arts specialist at this point. Rob, just as well, if there was one book you could read this month, that it be the Giant Man book. But I'm glad you were able to read the second half of the book, which is Dicko. So again, Dicko is penciling himself on the full-length Spider-Man book. 
and the half-length Dr. Strange book, but he is not himself on Hulk. He never has and he never will. He's being inked by George Bell, who is one of my least favorite inkers, but I think does a shockingly good job on these Hulk stories. I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Uh, Agreed. Yes. This is another very well-told story. You know, it's like, okay, this month we're a little early for Good Doctor Strange. We're oddly in a lull with Spider-Man and Fantastic Four, but we are right at the start of the Hulk getting really, really good. Yes. Yes. This is the beginning of this very, very long Hulk epic that goes on for a couple of years, I think. It's already at a pretty good level on this on this issue, I think. Yeah. Yes. This is like our third issue with the leader, who is the Hulk's great villain. Just fantastic work by Dicko, who knows to what degree with Lee creating the leader as this wonderful foil, the sort of perfect antagonist for the Hulk with the Hulk, you know, having gotten super strength from a gamma explosion and the leader having gotten super intelligence from it. So we begin the issue with the Incredible Hulk battles the Horde of Humanoids. Glenn Talbot and Thunderbolt Ross have Bruce Banner jailed up. They're sure he's working with the Hulk in some way. Bruce Banner's like, that's fine. Just keep giving me tranquilizer pills. I just want lots of tranquilizer pills. And they're like, uh, here you go. Here his mother's little helper. <laughs> Meanwhile, but he, they're like, we're going to keep you in prison. Betty's like, I still can't believe Bruce is a traitor. I couldn't love him as I do if he weren't. Meanwhile, Rick Jones gets in to see Bruce Banner. And Rick Jones is like, I know a way to solve this. I'm going to go to see Lyndon Baines Johnson, and he's going to solve this problem. He uses his Avengers idea to get in to see LBJ, and he says to LBJ, let me go ahead and just tell you that Bruce Banner is the Hulk, and let's have this be a secret between Bruce Banner, Rick Jones, and Lyndon Baines Johnson. And LBJ says, yep, I'm glad you told me. You were right to tell me, but we shouldn't tell anybody else, and let's have this be a secret between the three of us. And this is the status quo for years in this book. So then Rick Jones, and by the way, this is just bizarre because Rick Jones is still in the Avengers going strong. Rick Jones has just been split into two, and usually Stan Lee is very careful to not have the same character be in two books in the same month doing unrelated things, but he just completely breaks that rule with Rick Jones, which is very strange. Over and over again. LBJ says, say nothing, son. We shall share this secret and convey my good wishes to the Avengers when next they meet. Glenn Talbot, on orders from the president, has to let Bruce Banner out, and it's like going fine, and then they're like, well, I guess you might as well supervise the next test of something you invented, which is the Absorbitron. They're going to blow up a nuclear missile on an island. Bruce Banner has invented an Absorbitron built to absorb the impact of an atomic bomb blast, providing the perfect defense against an atomic attack, which I got to say is a wonderful thing to invent. I'm glad somebody invented that. Glenn Talbot and Bruce Banner are going to be on this island testing this thing. The leader, of course, wants to find the Hulk, but he also just wants to steal technology. So I don't think the leader knows he's going to run to the Hulk there. That's just a lucky bonus. But the leader is just like, I'm going to try to steal the Absorbitron. When we first met the leader, there was a little bit of an implication he might be a communist. That's clearly not the case. He's someone who just seemingly wants to steal this stuff for himself. But like when we first met him, he was ordering the chameleon around. And the chameleon, we think of as being... He's still ordering the chameleon around in this issue. Is he? The chameleon is in this issue? It says that someone he's talking to over some kind of communication device is the chameleon. Okay. So then Banner and Talbot are there. Banner starts turning the Hulk, runs away. Talbot's like, wait, why did you run away? And then he sees the Hulk like, I knew it. Banner and the Hulk are working together. So can't quite pierce together. Like they both have purple pants, dude. Do the math. <laughs> the leader is like, hey, the Hulk, good. I, I like the Hulk. The leader goes in and has his humanoids attack. It's interesting. We have a big three-page fight scene between the humanoids and the Hulk, but it doesn't escalate. 
the fight just goes and goes and goes. And then the issue just sort of ends with them still fighting. And I guess there is sort of this escalation that's happening and that they're about to drop a nuclear bomb, but it doesn't happen yet. And it really feels like an oddly anticlimactic ending to an issue that, you know, it doesn't end on some big event or escalation or anything. It just ends by fight. That is our issue. I think it is well penciled by Dicko, well, presumably co-potted by Dicko and co-potted by Lee, well scripted by Lee, and shockingly well inked by Bell. I really have no issues with inking on this issue at all. I mean, it's not as well inked as if Dicko had inked himself, of course, but really shockingly good inks. I really, again, just really like the leader as a character. I really like the humanoids. I think Hulk fighting the humanoids is always just great comics because on the one hand, they're strong, but they're also very strong in a very different way than the Hulk. And they're bendy and supple and springy just in a way that you can just tell are so infuriating to the Hulk. <laughs> and watching the Hulk just be absolutely infuriated by these bendy, springy guys is always fun. And I think this is- Can we talk about that first action page? I mean, that's a classic. That's a really- very dynamic. The composition of it is great. The action is good. There's stuff going on in those first two panels where it looks like the, the character is overlapping from one panel to the other, which was an unusual technique in those days to compose the page this way. Um, oh, are you talking about page eight? Page eight of this story. Yes, that's correct. It's just an incredibly good page. Like if you're collecting original art, this is a page that you would absolutely want on your wall. Oh, yeah. And the last page of the story is actually quite good also. Throughout this, I've been complaining about like the overuse of text in some of these stories. The Hulk generally, like if you read this epic start to finish, if you get like the omnibus book mm-hmm. and you just read the whole leader story, all 30 chapters of it, you know, from end to end. Actually, the writing in it is quite good. There's a lot, but it doesn't feel like too much. I mean, some things are over-described a little bit by modern standards, but every aspect of this is pretty well-crafted. And again, it's like it's just goofy that they would stick this in the back of the book with this dumbass Giant Man story in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, both this being in the back of this book and Doctor Strange being in the back of Strange Tales, those are both just like your priorities are out of whack there, Stan. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, this is some fantastic stuff. I'm really happy with it. Like you said, Matt, it's like the the humanoids are indestructible, but not in the way that you would think when you said something's indestructible. It's not like it's so rock hard or so steel skinned or anything like that. It's like, no, it's just you can't hurt them because it just goes bounce. (laughs) But they're also super strong. It really turns out nicely. This is satisfying in the same way that that Captain America fight scene is satisfying but it's also up to quite a bit more than that story, I think we can agree. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. When we think of big, epic Marvel stories, certainly the biggest Marvel epic of the 60s is the Doctor Strange epic that we're about to get in the next 12 issues, in that it is like plotted to be a 12-issue epic, and it's the only time in the 60s that Marvel did a 12-issue epic that was plotted to be a 12-issue epic. But as you said, this leader story goes on for a long time. Every issue ends on a cliffhanger, and it's essentially, as I've said before, the Doctor Strange epic is a very intentional epic. The Hulk is just sort of a shaggy dog story and isn't intended to be a big epic, but sort of becomes one just because it's told in the sort of Perils of Pauline type style in which every issue ends on a cliffhanger. And it's really a very satisfying story in its own right. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and get to Avengers. So, Rob, you've heard us say a number of times we do these in alphabetical order, and you've probably been like, oh, we didn't do the Avengers, dude. We always keep the Avengers to last because oftentimes we found the Avengers seems to reference things that may have happened in other books during that month. 
we are going to be meeting Count Nefaria in here. This is different from Dr. Nefario with, from the uh, Despicable Me movies, but just about as competent. On the splash page, first thing I'm going to point out is it looks to me like Stan had Jack Kirby redraw Giant Man in the background there. Everybody <laughs> else definitely looks like Don Heck. But Giant Man, that, sure I mean... it does. That could even be a stat that yeah. they used from the previous issue. Yeah, that's another good point. I think you're right. We start off with, um, there's a crime wave going on done by the Magia. Because, of course, you can't say the Mafia because they would actually come and whack you back in those days. So, <laughs> and because you've got Vince Goetta right there in the bullpen with you. <laughs> you know, like, hey, we're going to talk about how terrible the Mafia is. Oh, sorry, Vince. No offense. <laughs> Ah, yes. Uh, Please do not sue us. These are all rumors. Uh, Yes, allegedly. So so they're stealing furs, and then the Avengers go and stop a heist of a bunch of furs, which seems a little below the Avengers pay grade, honestly. Any one of the Avengers individually, maybe? Iron Man, Captain America, sure, I could see them doing this, but eh, it seems a little weird. It turns out that the Magia is run by... Count Nefaria, who is the richest nobleman in Europe. They don't specifically say Italy, but, you know, presumably this is Italy. He has all this high technology. He's able to control the American mob remotely using super science communication scopes and various stuff. He punishes the Magia boss who isn't doing what he should be doing. And then he's like, okay, the Avengers are costing me too much. I am going to come up with a plan to destroy them. And the most logical plan I can possibly do (laughs) is in the course of three panels, I will completely deconstruct my stone castle stone by stone, ship it all to America and reconstruct it stone by stone in the New Jersey Palisades. Yes, because why wouldn't you? (laughs) Hey, they'd already done it with the cloisters in Manhattan. Why not go ahead and do this too? Then he sends an invitation to the Avengers saying, hey, I'm going to have this big charity bash at my new castle. People will show up if you're there. So can you show up? And it's all for the kids or something. It's all to fight TBA. (laughs) Anyway, the Avengers are like, yeah, sure. Okay, it's uh, it's for the youths. We'll go ahead and show up. They get to the castle. Count Nefaria is like, oh, yes, let me show you to your rooms. I've gone ahead and given you each state rooms for you to go in and freshen up and get ready for the gala. Meanwhile, the Teen Brigade has accompanied them for some reason, or for no reason, or whatever else. Why? Why is the Teen Brigade still in this book? Why is Rick Jones still in this book? He is out in the American Southwest hanging out with the Hulk. No, 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 he's in Washington, (laughs) D.C. Hanging out with Lyndon Baines Johnson. Yeah, I, I think we need to start having a regular feature on this with where is Rick Jones this month? And just have a list of all the physical locations <laughs> that they have placed this teenage high school dropout in, <laughs> zipping all and over we, the country. A huge issue in Marvel Comics is always, what is the news cycle like here? The Avengers tell the team, Rick and the Teen Brigade, we're going to go into the castle. Rick, you and the Teen Brigade wait outside until the doors open to the public and we'll be inside the castle. They all go in. The Avengers are all taken captive. He replaces the Avengers with images of themselves that are under nefarious complete control. He has them announce that they are taking over the world. We see this show up in the paper as Avengers declare war on U.S. 
and then the army declares war on the Avengers. Meanwhile, <laughs> we cut to Rick and the Teen Brigade, who are still waiting around outside the castle. I hadn't <laughs> put together that timing. <laughs> and they say, I don't like it, fellas. Calf would have never kept us waiting this long. Maybe we ought to go in and have a look around. You're right, Rick. We've been hanging around here for hours. Like, yeah, it's been hours, dude. It's been long enough for the Avengers to be taken captive, replaced with images, send those images out into the world, have those images declare war on the world, have the army declare war on the images. This all made the newspaper. And Rick and the Teen Brigade are still sitting around outside. Uh, this is like the end of the movie Airplane, where it cuts to the cabbie. Who's... I was about to say, this is reminding me of the end of Airplane. <laughs> I'll give him five more minutes. Okay. Nefaria then throws the Teen Brigade in a dungeon. The Avengers are then told, oh yeah, sorry, we had to reschedule the thing for tomorrow. So uh, why don't you go along? Captain America's like, uh... oh no, it's Iron Man. Sounds like a sloppy way to run a charity affair, mister. But okay, if we can make it, we'll be here. So it's like, sure, we'll rearrange our schedule to be back another day after you screwed this up. So the American army go and attack them immediately, and the Avengers are like, what the heck is going on? Is this some force disguising themselves as the U.S. Army? They eventually figure out, no, it is the U.S. Army. We're not sure what's going on here. We've got to get away until we figure out what's going on and what we need to do. So they figure out that they have been slandered and they're on the run. We meanwhile see as in a little aside that there is a guy from the Pentagon who is going around to other super people, and we just see him at the Fantastic Four offices, telling them, hey, the public's pretty hot right now about superheroes with this whole Avengers turning traitor thing. So we're just going around telling all the superheroes, yeah, don't go out on the street. Just stay inside. But one thing that I found amusing is this guy in a trench coat just walks into the FF's lab. They say, who are you? How did you get here? He says, I'm from the Pentagon. This card authorizes me to get anywhere. Um, uh, okay, so no warrant needed. <laughs> so it turns out that the Teen Brigade had a sub-miniature ham radio hit that they had been given by Iron Man. And once again, there's this whole confusion about, does everybody know that Iron Man is Tony Stark? Because it's like, you know, no one but Iron Man could have come up with this particular kind of technology. It's like, oops, did I say Iron Man? I <laughs> meant Tony Stark. Once again, Spider-Man is the only one who puts any effort into this whole secret identity thing in the Marvel Universe. Everybody else just does not. Anyway. Meanwhile, Nefaria is making a big point of the fact that he is doing everything he can to not actually be someone to pull a trigger or to, you know, do anything to harm anyone. And in the days before Rico laws, that would pretty much keep you out of jail. So he knows the Team Brigade's trying to signal the Avengers. The Avengers don't get the message, but Nefaria knows that they have. And so he puts them in this sort of death trap room. But once again, he's not killing them. He's just putting them in a situation where... Oh, they might accidentally get killed themselves. The Avengers figure out that something's fishy with this, so they come over to the castle to rescue the Teen Brigade. And there's this weird technology thing, and this is one of the things where Don Heck just isn't cut out to do the Avengers. There's some kind of paralyzing gas. This makes it into the Marvel No Prize book, uh, the first panel on page 16, where they're all touching each other and spreading this chemical that is paralyzing all of them. And Thor thinks, we are under the power of some potent chemical strong enough to affect my mighty body, which no mere physical force can overcome. 
And in the Marvel No Prize book, they mock that panel and they go, unless we forget the mighty Thor, who supposedly cannot be felled by anything physical, succumbing to chemicals in Avengers 13. Chemicals are physical. Shh, don't tell him. <laughs> what I thought you were going to say is the thing that's most ridiculous on this page is that, well, apparently the castle has been set up with, if you touch it, it's very much like a little kid's game. If you touch the castle, you're frozen. You can't, yeah. Iron Man is flying up to the castle and touches it and is suddenly frozen in the air with his hands against the castle wall. But you very clearly see, like, four panels later, he's just stuck there, like, he's, you know, doing a handstand horizontally against the wall. <laughs> just like, what? Captain America then takes a strand of nylon, ties it around his shield, okay, maybe around the straps on the bottom, uh, perhaps, okay, but then he loops it around the top of the, of the castle tower, somehow uses that to swing into a window in the, the castle, but if you look at the layout of what's going on here, how he is able to lift himself up to do that swing boggles the mind. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how that would work. Anyway, he's able to get past that whole paralyzing defense thing. Comes in, knocks out a bunch of Majagoons, finds Rick and the teen brigaders, uh, or brigadiers, as they call them, I guess, trapped where they are. He springs them, and then it turns out Nefaria was taunting the teen brigade by pointing out the antidote that could unfreeze the Avengers and be like, ha you're trapped in here, so you can't use this which is right outside your cage. I'll just leave it here to make you feel bad. They're like, oh, okay, good. Then we know what to do. So then they take that, they unfreeze all the Avengers. Captain America has been captured, but then the rest of the Avengers come in, capture the rest of the Majagoons, capture Count Nefaria. Now he's going to be deported. And one of the worst things for him is he is now revealed as being a villain. He always loved that his public image was just this rich, European count, but now he has been revealed as this international criminal. But all he does is gets deported. But then the last thing we have is a little cliffhanger. Apparently, Jan had been injured by a stray bullet during this whole thing, and she is laying what looks like lifeless in Rick's arms. So that will be what comes into the next issue. I've only, I've only got a, I've only got a couple of minutes left here, so um, let me quickly let me quickly weigh in on this one because this this era of the Avengers is very frustrating because yeah. there are yeah. great issues in here, and there's also this percolating storyline with the Masters of Evil that's going to pay off in an issue or two, and meanwhile they put in these filler issues that weird cobbled together stories of stuff happening for no particular reason, drawn in a great hurry by Don Heck. It looks to me like he was given a stack of the Captain America comics that we were talking about mm. and said, draw, draw like this. And so like, there's, there's a few of these action sequences where he's like daintily trying to draw a Jack Kirby type action sequence and he yeah. just can't get his pen around it. And meanwhile, there's these like huge gaps of logic and continuity. It's very likely that the next issue is going to be like Kang or like something really cool. If I were a consumer of the Avengers in this era, I would be very wary of, you know, are we going to get the, the brown M&M this time or something? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think you mean the tan M&M. The tan M&M was the... <laughs> the this one, one is definitely a brown M&M. This one is... <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so again, let me thank you guys for having me on. This is great fun to go back, you know, because 
I have lizard brain memories of reading these stories when I was a kid and having particular reactions to them and coming to them later and like forming some opinions about this. But I hadn't read these particular comics in quite a while. And it is eye-opening because uh, this difficult middle adolescent period of the Marvel age is very, very hit or miss. So. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, thank, well, well thank you so much for taking the time and effort to come on here. I know this probably ran a little longer than you were planning on. We often run over what we plan on doing. Uh, you are welcome back anytime, hopefully for a better month of <laughs> I think month after month from here on, it gets better and you'll get like a thicker density. Like I don't think Daredevil ever gets any good, but some of these books are definitely heading into what we think of as their classic period. So it's a blast. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for coming by. We really appreciate it. We loved what you had to say about the books. We'll just go ahead and say our goodbyes. Thank you, everybody out there in podcast land for listening. And we hope to see you back here for our next episode. Thanks a lot. Take care. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.